Inshallah. That might just be my favorite word of all time. Not just because it sounds beautiful, or so I think, but most of all because of its layered meaning. Taken literally, it simply means if God wills it. But when used in daily life, it can signify a number of things. It's a polite way of saying yes, no, maybe, or anything in between. But whatever the intended meaning, no Muslim could take issue with the reply that God's will be done. It can also be the equivalent of a shrug, express despair, or, on the contrary, hope for the future. How you choose to interpret it is mostly up to you. The reason I bring this up is that I feel like this is true for the story of Muhammad as well. I told you before that I wasn't sure how to tackle this super sensitive subject. In fact, I even considered skipping over it entirely. Many of you are no doubt Muslim. If a non-believer like myself discusses something so important to you, I fear that might offend you or hurt your feelings. And that's like the last thing I want to do. But then again, I'm convinced that ignorance about the Muslim faith is one of the reasons behind the current Islamophobia. People fear what they don't understand. So I can't in good conscience just skip over this topic. And besides, making a show about the history of Arabia and then leaving out one of the most important parts, that wouldn't make any sense either, would it? But how to go about it? To explain the reasoning behind my approach, I want to start with a Game of Thrones quote. As always, I think these are easily digestible expressions of philosophical thought. So here comes. I sometimes play a little game. I wonder what would be the worst reason why people do what they do. And then I ask myself, how well does that reason explain their actions? Now, if you follow that logic, you can easily see the worst in everyone. But as it turns out in the show too, that's not always the way things are. Putting such thoughts in someone's head can be a subtle way of manipulation. And I think many of us are nudged to, toward a similar mindset, not by some evil genius, but by our own institutions and habits. I myself am in a way trained and paid to be distrustful. Many people are. Historians and social scientists who are inclined to believe their objects of study at their word, who take primary sources at face value, will not be taken seriously. But perhaps, when we talk about historical figures or even politicians in our own time, aren't we a bit too quick to assume that they are jockeying for power all the time? I'm sure I read somewhere that psychopaths are somewhat overrepresented in leadership positions. But what about all the rest, the vast majority? If you look around you, is it really always the egotistic schemers that people flock to? In high school, perhaps, but other than that? I don't know that many powerful people, but those I met didn't usually strike me as dishonest or conniving, rather as passionate. Friedrich von Hayek said, and I'm paraphrasing, that nice people don't even try to get in a position where they have to decide how others have to live their lives. In other words, good leaders don't want to lead. But is it not possible that someone goes into politics out of a sense of responsibility to do good? If the process to get there ensures that the worst get on top, that depends on the process, doesn't it? And on expectations, culture and luck, on context. At least sometimes people end up in leading positions not because they're good liars, 
but on the contrary because they have proven themselves trustworthy, especially in circumstances where there is a lot of social control. As Juval Harari points out in his famous book Sapiens, gossip is probably one of the first and most important functions of human communication, because it allowed people to exp expose and discredit those with who did bad things, who were not to be trusted. This enabled us to cooperate better, which was an important evolutionary asset. Well, if so, might you not expect evolution to have given us a sixth sense for smelling a fraud? I don't know to what extent that's the case, but in my direct environment, people who have a habit of cheating and lying tend to get exposed sooner rather than later. Now, when discussing history, we are talking about people we never met in person, and whose minds are therefore more of a black box to us. But instead of assuming the worst, we might just as well assume the best. Some historians have looked at Mohammed's actions and words, and suspected cynical, egoistic manipulation behind each of them. Today, I will try to do the opposite for a change. I will ask myself, what would be the best reason why the Prophet did what he did? And how well would that explain his actions? The answer is, as it turns out, astonishingly well. And this should not be surprising, because if it were otherwise, would there really be more than a billion people who still see him as their great example? Now, some of you fans of objective history might balk at this. Why assume anything? Give us the hard facts. But please understand that since there are so few undisputed sources about Mohammed, if I had to limit myself to what is known for certain, this would be a very short episode indeed. If you try to fill in the blanks, you can look at the story in completely different ways, each of them equally biased. Many commentators have evaluated the Prophet's words and deeds with lots of skepticism, but given that this is also just an interpretation, no more, no more objective than the next one, one might ask oneself, what's the point in that? It's a given that Muslims will try to emulate the Prophet, the Quran urges them to. And knowing that, I would prefer that guy to be an admirable character. Luckily, as I read about the Prophet's life, I found much to like about him. He never claimed to be a saint, but the ideals he spoke of are, I think, often worthy of admiration, and the practices he introduced were an improvement on what came before. To those who know this, claims of certain violent or intolerant groups to represent the true Islam come across as a sad joke. True Muslims know this all too well. Outsiders need to know it too. Perhaps knowing is too strong a word in this case, but when it comes to history, there are different sorts of knowledge. What actually took place in 7th century Arabia might not be as consequential as the way it is remembered. It's not the man Muhammad that lives on. It's how his words and deeds are interpreted and understood by later generations. Knowing about this reception is more valuable than knowing the date of this or that battle. At the state of his fantastic show Kings of Kings, Dan Carlin, king of history podcasting, quotes an author who gives the following warning. You have to believe in ancient history, even if it's not true. Well, I would change that, um, that line a bit. You must know about the traditional story, even if you can't verify it, because it has huge consequences for the world we live in. You cannot begin to understand Muslim society, or world politics for that matter, without knowing about it. This is the reason why I chose Arabia as the starting point for the podcast. 
for nothing has made an impression on ancient history like the religion of Islam. So I reckoned it would be logical to start with the place where it originated. Islam is a universalist religion, but at the same time, it remains forever connected to its Arabian roots. Of course, the birth of Islam has had a huge impact on Arabia itself. Long after the last drop of oil will be pumped out of the ground, it will still remain the place where the Muslim faith was born and from whence it spread. It goes without saying that Islam is now a very complex religion with many sectarian and geographical variations. We will further discover these in upcoming episodes. But at its inception, simplicity was its strength. Its essence was captured by the Prophet himself in the five so-called pillars of faith. It's on these topics that I will focus my analysis today. The first is the Shahada, the acknowledgement that there is only one God, Allah, and that Muhammad is his prophet. His Arabian birthplace, Mecca, takes center stage in two other pillars. The prayer, or Salat, should be performed five times a day in the city's direction. And those who have the means should travel there at least once in their lifetime to make the Hajj. The highlight of that pilgrimage is to walk seven times around the Kaaba, an ancient shrine in Mecca. If you've never seen this, do look it up. It's truly awesome to see this mass of people moving solemnly around that giant building. Especially if you realize that for each of them, this must be one of the most important experiences of their entire lives. Most will have saved up for it a long time. This already tells you that it's an important source of income for the Saudi authorities as well. The remaining two pillars of Islam are fasting during the holy month of Ramadan and almsgiving or zakat. All these things are timeless in their significance, but at the same time, behind each of them, there also lies another particular kind of logic that can only be understood by examining the time and place in which Muhammad lived and the problems that crossed his path. So today, we'll discuss the main historical events that impacted his life, but we will start by examining the long-term processes that led up to them. So, what was Arabia like before the early Muslim conquests? Important exceptions notwithstanding, it was a peripheral place of limited interest to the outside world. This would not come as a surprise to those who've heard earlier episodes of this podcast. The main reason is geographical. It's mostly inhospitable and unsuited to agriculture. Before the Grape Arab expansion, which we covered last time, Arabia was surrounded by superior powers. In the northwest, you had the Roman Empire, or Byzantium. To the east, there were the Sassanid Persians. And then there was another noteworthy player, whom we haven't talked about yet, but which has a part to play in the early history of Islam. Just across the narrow sea, now known as the Bab al-Mandab in the Horn of Africa, lay the Ethiopian state of Aksum, or Abyssinia. This was a major power at the time and it would clash with the Persian Empire over who would control the lucrative sea trade. Now, the Romans were also dependent on the Silk Road, and the Persians already largely controlled the land route, so if they now also managed to secure the sea route, this would give them a very strong position. This alone gave the Roman Emperor a, a reason to side with the Aksumites. Now why do I start with these neighbors before talking about Arabia itself? Well, because most of what we know about the pre-Islamic Arabians, we know from the empires that surrounded them. 
And this is a problem, since these outsiders mostly consider the Arabs a primitive and troublesome people, so their sources are not unbiased. To give you an idea of how the Arabs appeared in the eyes of outsiders, here are a few excerpts from an eyewitness account by a Roman commander who served in the region in the 4th century CE. Quote, no man ever grasps a plough handle or cultivates a tree. None seeks a living by tilling the soil, but they rove continually over wide and extensive tracts without a home, without fixed adobes or laws. They have mercenary wives, hired under a temporary contract. They all feed upon game and an abundance of milk, which is their main sustenance. And I've seen many of them who were wholly unacquainted with grain and wine." End quote. Such views return in the sources over and over again, maybe a bit too often even to be dismissed as purely proto-racist make-believe. Yet there is no denying that the lack of Arab perspectives limits our understanding. For instance, we've seen that the Arab ethnicity was changed, deepened and spread by the early Muslim conquests. But what did it mean to be Arab before that? This seems like a boring question perhaps, but when you think about it, few things are more important. We can't just go about saying, and then the Arabs did this, and then the Arabs did that, if we can't define what we mean by Arab. Then these statements would be truly meaningless, wouldn't they? Now, identities are slippery things. In the unlikely event that a later historian would ever classify me, he would label me a Belgian, since that's what it says on my passport right here, and that's how I will appear in government records, which might survive after I'm gone. Now many of my countrymen don't want anything to do with Belgium. They see themselves as Flemish exclusively. If a later historian referred to such Belgium haters simply as Belgians, would that really be a good description? But what's the alternative? Postmodern historians, and a growing number of people worldwide, assert that the way we define ourselves, that's how we should be addressed. I didn't choose to be Belgian, that's just how the man calls me. But I'm whatever I say I am, right? If so, then what label to pick? Although you won't hear me complaining about being called Belgian or Flemish, I feel more connected with other history nuts or fans of Game of Thrones, so I guess that's how historians should classify people like me. Now why don't we put this question to the people we are actually interested in here, the pre-Islamic Arabs? How would they like to be called, please? Alas, we have no clue for they didn't write this down. By contrast, Arabs are mentioned in outside sources as early as the beginning of the, the first millennium BC by the Assyrians. The Romans still used that term for the inhabitants of the region. After they turned the former Nabataean kingdom into a Roman province, they called that province Arabia. Had there been passports back then, the word Arab would have been on it. Hence, Arab became an administrative term. But all that doesn't mean these people called themselves Arabs. They probably wouldn't even have had a word for it, for they would not have recognized themselves as one people. Due to constant mingling, they did share some customs and spoke a similar language, but we only notice our commonalities when we are confronted with strangers who don't share these features. During the Great Arab Expansion, this happened on a huge scale, but before that, the inhabitants of the Arabian Peninsula probably succumbed to what Freud called the narcissism of minor differences. I'm afraid that, like a lucid Game of Thrones character once noted, 
Many of us are stuck with the nicknames that our enemies have bestowed upon us, especially if those enemies are more literate than we are. The reason why we know so little about the pre-Islamic Arabs is that most of them still lived in prehistory, meaning that they didn't leave many written sources that are available to historians. They did care about their heritage though. Knowledge about historical events was passed down orally by poets and storytellers. It was really popular, like ancient television so to speak. But just like you shouldn't believe everything you see on TV, so most historians are distrustful of oral testimonies, not without reason. Have you ever played the game of telephone, or as the French fittingly call it, jeu de téléphone arabe? It works like this. A bunch of kids sit in a circle. The first whispers a short story in the ear of his neighbor, who then passes it on to the next and so forth. The clue is that by the time the story reaches the person who made it up, he or she won't even recognize it anymore. This game offers a useful lesson. The human memory is incredibly flawed and oral testimony is not to be trusted. Besides, getting every detail right was rarely the point of storytelling anyway. It's more about evoking drama, making the audience feel good about themselves, perhaps teaching a moral lesson or two. Come to think of it, aren't history podcasts a species of oral history too? Since most reviews are not written by professional historians, what would the best predictor for a show's ratings and audience size be? Accuracy or entertainment value? That's what I tell myself all the time, you know. It's the quality of the listeners that matters, Christoph, not the quantity. <laughs> Still, a nice review is always appreciated. Now, all silliness aside, the Prophet himself was fully emerged in Arabia's oral tradition. You can tell because he didn't arrange to safeguard the words of God for posterity by putting them in a comprehensive tome. The Quran was put in its present form later, on the orders of the Caliph. Luckily, little time had passed by then and the content is not in doubt. And as I said before, the man who was tasked with collecting testimonies about the Prophet would only accept them if different companions recalled them, independent of each other. In that case, oral history becomes much more trustworthy. It shows you that it is not always inferior to the written sort. Besides, just so you know, this podcast is heavily scripted, so it's not totally dependent on my flawed memory either. As for the Quran, although its authenticity is not in question, it still has limited use as a historical source, because it isn't in the business of narrating history. In this sense, it is wildly different from the Bible, which is basically a collection of stories. Instead, the Quran is supposed to be the literal word of God. Not without reason, it starts with the command, recite. For this is what the angel uh, Gabriel told Muhammad to do. That's why he was called messenger of Allah. He had to pass on the message verbatim. That, by the way, is why Arabic is considered a holy language and required learning material for Muslims. If one reads the Quran in another language, the original meaning might get lost in translation. Christendom doesn't have a holy language, nor does it need one. The Bible acknowledges that it is the product of human testimony. For instance, in the New Testament you have the Gospel according to John and another according to Matthew, Luke and Mark. Now according to historians, these accounts are not written by the apostles to whom they refer. They are not unproblematic as source material, but at least they contain mentions of the context of biblical events, which can be readily compared to outside sources. 
for instance, that Herod was king when Jesus was born and that Pilate was magistrate when he was sentenced to death, etc. Not so with the context of Muhammad's life. As we shall see, the Quran does deal with concrete issues that the Prophet encountered, so they give you some insight in it. But since he only started getting his revelations when he was about 40 years old, it hardly reveals anything about the rest of his life. Nor do his later biographers seem particularly interested in that, understandably since he is no saint or divine figure. What concerned them is what he did and said in his capacity of prophet. And this was collected in the Hadiths. Unlike the Quran, these were put to paper long after the fact, which is why Muslim scholars disagree on the authenticity and authority of this or that Hadith. If I tried to discuss the Hadiths themselves, I would fall down a rabbit hole, rabbit hole with no end in sight. I intend to avoid that by focusing on what modern historians have to say about Muhammad's actions. Now, normally, they would compare these narratives to outside contemporary sources. But unfortunately for them, Muhammad didn't seem to attract much outside attention during his lifespan. Nor did the town of Mecca for that matter. Therefore, using their habitual methods, historians find it really hard to figure out who the historical Muhammad really was. In any basic manual on the subject, there are a few facts about Muhammad that come up every single time. For instance, that he was born in Mecca in 570 and orphaned soon later after which he grew up to become a successful merchant. You might think that these at least are straightforward and uncontroversial facts. Well, you would be mistaken. Each of these elements is disputed by at least some historians. Start with the most basic thing. Not everyone is entirely convinced that the Prophet was named Muhammad at the time of his birth. For the word Muhammad has a meaning, namely the praised. This seems to prefigure his later role as prophet, of which his parents could hardly have been aware when they named him. Now, even if this were a honorific title, I don't think it should matter. It would still be perfectly plain to whom the Shahada refers. The prophet has other honorary designations too. And the same thing applies to Jesus' surname, by the way, since Christ means anointed one. And Siddhartha Gautama was only called the Buddha after his enlightenment. All that doesn't really change anything, I would think. More contentious is another basic fact about Muhammad's early life, that he was a merchant from Mecca. Historians have noticed that there are few traces of a vibrant trading center near today's Mecca. Now, what some of the more skeptic historians sometimes fail to appreciate, in my humble view, is that absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. It also doesn't help that the Saudi authorities have not been eager to encourage archaeology. On the contrary, they have made this impossible by pouring concrete over sites with huge religious significance. But even then, one would expect to find pottery around Mecca. Pots are plentiful and they hardly decay, so you always find them near the ruins of an ancient trading hub. Unless, perhaps, if the Meccans traded solely in goods that didn't require pots, and that might just be possible, for one of the main trading goods was frankincense from Yemen. This was in demand throughout the world, not as a basic flagrant, but most of all because you'd be hard-pressed to find any religion at the time that didn't use it in its ceremonies. Incense was transported in palm leaves, which would leave no traces. The Bedouins, for their part, would have sold leather, which also does not require pottery for transport.
A stronger argument of the skeptics, perhaps, is that if Mecca were indeed a bustling trading center, you would expect its name to be mentioned frequently by outside sources. That appears not to be the case either. This has led to all sorts of speculation. Some researchers have claimed to have discovered the real Mecca. I saw a documentary on YouTube in which one went to great lengths to argue that it was in fact Petra in Jordan. Now, what are we to make of this? For something like that to be fabricated successfully, lots and lots of people would have to be in on it. As a wise man once said, if a handful of people know something, it's no longer a secret. It becomes information. Many people would have remembered where Mecca was, if only because there were always pilgrims heading that way. It would be hard for anyone to convince the whole world that, whoops, it's actually a few hundred miles further north. Trying this would surely have led to a huge uproar, and it stands to reason that historians would have found evidence of this. For this theory to be true, there would have to be a great omerta even across enemy borders. It has all the makings of a conspiracy theory, I think. Now, let's be clear, I don't want to take a position on these issues. I just want to illustrate that even the most basic facts about the Prophet's early life are debated. The same goes for the date of his birth, 570. For this is not just any random year, in Arabia it is known as the year of the elephant. And to explain why, I need to talk a bit about that other part of Arabia, the Yemen. Before the arrival of Islam, Yemen was the richest place in Arabia. Its mountains captured a lot of rain so that agriculture could support a considerable population. Yemen's prosperity contrasted so favorably with the rest of the peninsula that the Romans dubbed it Arabia Felix. Happy Arabia, as opposed to the less inviting Arabia Deserta. This may seem ironic as Yemen is currently a paragon of poverty and anarchy, while other Arabian countries are rolling in the money. However, based on geography, the current situation is perhaps stranger than that of antiquity. Not only does the south have a gentler climate, it is also on an important sea route, then as well as now. And in the mountains of the Hadramaut, today in eastern Yemen, there grew trees that provided some of the most valuable products of the ancient economy. Not drugs like uh, cat and coffee, but incense and myrrh. Now, funny story, I think, the name Hadramaut means presence of debt. I read that this was mainly PR. The inhabitants wanted to discourage foreigners from looking for the source of their wealth. They also wanted to encourage travelers to pay for safe passage. So in this reading, the Yemenis cherish their dangerous image for pragmatic reasons. Now, I have to come clean on something. I've read a lot about the Yemenis by this time, and there is something that I still can't quite figure out. There is something contradictory about how they are typically described. On the one hand, as very pragmatic and proud of it. On the other, as very mercurial and proud of it. I repeatedly read that politics in Yemen is conducted like a market transaction in which everything is up for negotiation, and that if someone loses his nerve in such transactions, he besmirches his honor. The ancient example of the Hadramaut's name points to this, but it still comes up in descriptions of tourist abductions in the early 70s. The captives were generally treated hospitably and demands for ransom were reasonable. The last thing the kidnappers wanted, it seems, was to scare off tourists. And they didn't, because for some it was part of the attraction. 
But at the same time, scholars who have done fieldwork in Yemen never tire of stressing the Yemeni's legendary temper. See what I mean? I'm starting to fear I may never understand it. If there is a Yemeni listener at some point, please be so kind as to explain it to me. But maybe there is no explanation. Maybe this just goes to show that stereotypes are precisely that. Be that as it may, for centuries the Yemenis managed to profit from their relatively benign circumstances. There was room for accumulation of wealth, much more than in the rest of the peninsula anyway. There was also more need for political organization, since irrigation works were vital. The Marib Dam, for instance, was a wonder of the ancient world. Consequently, centuries before Arabia Deserta would spawn something that could pass for a state, Yemen was already home to small but wealthy empires. Now, the surplus was all in all limited, so the Yemeni kingdoms were not as stratified as real empires. The monarch was still a first among equals, it seems. But still, some of these states could last a long time. The most important of them, by far, was Saba. There is a story in the Bible in which its legendary queen visits the Jewish king Salomon, impressed him, impressing him with her display of wealth. Although this may be just a legend, Saba was wealthy indeed. It was this kingdom that profi profited from the impressive Marib Dam, as well as from the transit trade with India. When it was undercut by the Romans, that was the beginning of the end for Saba. And it would also lead to a decline of the overland caravan trade, with grave consequences for inland Arabia. When the giant dam broke, around 550, this was an even more catastrophic event, which resonated all throughout the peninsula. By that time, however, Saba and its rival kingdoms were already taken over by another power named Himjar. And yet, Saba is still worth mentioning here, for it had some things in common with pre-Islamic Mecca. The other kingdoms of Yemen were never truly under its thumb, but they did send pilgrims to its main temple in annual processions. This was accompanied by cultural and economic exchange. The Yemeni kingdoms consecrated their temples to regional characterizations of the main god of Saba, a bit like Christians talk about Saint Mary of Lucht. This led to the spread of Sabaean culture, including its writing system. Himjar would adopt this and use it for centralization purposes when it took over the entire region in the late 3rd century. This would prove the beginning of a crucial new phase in the history of Arabia. For Himjar not only founded a centralized and aggressive state, it also radically changed the religious landscape of Arabia. Because its state policy was Judaism. And although this didn't mean that paganism would disappear overnight, Yemen never again reverted to a state culture of polytheism. This may partly explain its sudden expansionism. The pagan temples had filled up with treasures for centuries on end. Now these could be confiscated to pay for warfare. But this religious earthquake was a game-changer in more than one regard. For it, for it also ensured that Yemen, and practically the whole peninsula, would enter a period of great power competition and religious strife. The neighboring empires had always meddled in Arabia but mostly through local allies who fought on their behalf. Especially the inhabitants of the poorer regions of Arabia had often been pawns in someone else's game of chess. The empires weren't interested in governing these lands. Arab chiefs were recognized as allies on the condition that they kept raiders and imperial rivals at bay. Thanks to these alliances, 
But most of all, thanks to the control over the caravan trade, there arose some pretty wealthy states in the north of Arabia. Until the beginning of the 2nd century AD, the most flourishing civilization of the region was that of the Nabataeans. Like the Meccans later, they were nomadic in origin, but that didn't stop them from building the marvelous town of Petra, still a tourist hotspot in Jordan. The Nabataeans fell out with the Romans, however, and were eventually annexed by Trajan. Their position was then taken over by Palmyra. Like in Petra, Palmyra's majestic ruins attest to how much money could be made in the region at the time. Palmyra has also long been of the most popular travel destinations of the region, but not anymore. Somehow, Syria seems to have lost its appeal to tourists recently. The fate of the town was somewhat similar to that of Petra too. Its leaders let their success go to their heads, and they chose to rebel against the Roman Empire. For a while, it seemed to be going rather well. Under their famous Queen Zenobia, they even managed to occupy a large part of the Near East, and there are signs that she may have had the ambition of taking over Rome itself. This may sound fanciful, full in hindsight, but it would not be the first time that someone from the provinces captured the imperial throne. And if there ever was a good time for that, it was during the so-called crisis of the 3rd century. But eventually, Rome managed to get its act together and Palmyra was brought low. With the great merchant city in ruins, it seems that the center of the caravan trade shifted south towards the Arabian Peninsula itself. Now, since the Romans and the Persians weren't all that interested in Arab lands, the local leaders had been able to steer their own course. But with these once great buffer states out of the way, there was no more barrier that separated them from the empires. Partly for the same reason, the competition between Rome and Persia also intensified. This meant that for the Arabs, neutrality was no longer an option. So their independence lessened, but on the plus side, they became so paramount to the security of their imperial patrons that these no longer swapped one tribal client for another. From the 400s on, Arab vassals were tied firmly into imperial state structures, not unlike the barbarians in the West who often entered the Roman military. The most important Persian and Roman vassals were the Lakhmids and Ghassanids, respectively. In time, subsidies to Arab allies became regarded as an official right rather than a tool to divide and rule, which made the consequences all the more dire when patron and client eventually fell out. In the competition between Rome and Persia, religious ideology became ever more important, especially for the Romans, who saw Christianity as the legitimizing and unifying force behind their rule. Like in the Cold War, minor powers had to pick sides in ideological terms as well. But conversely, a strategic conversion could open the door to a useful alliance with a major power, and hence, unlock access to lucrative patronage. For instance, the Lakhmids converted to Nestorianism, which was the dominant Christian sect in the lands of their Persian patrons. Their rivals, the Ghassanids, embraced another sect. But had they been more pragmatic, they would have chosen the orthodoxy of Constantinople. Doesn't always work that way, however. Even for kings, conversion was rarely a matter of pure opportunism, these people really cared about the supernatural. The Ghassanids chose wrong in the eyes of the emperor, and this led to a rupture in 583. The Persians dumped their Lakhmid clients a good 20 years later. 
and this removed the final buffers between the empires and what soon became the Caliphate. It also rendered the border areas more insecure right away. The remnants of these former Arab kingdoms may even have played a hugely important role in the fall of their former patrons. So slowly but surely, the peninsula was drawn into the religiously charged power struggle between Romans and Persians. The opening shot in that struggle, however, had been fired long before, when Himjar had taken over the Yemen. For the Himjarites were allies of Persia, and possibly at Persian instigation, they slaughtered Yemeni Christians. But it would not be long before the other side made a counter-move. Just across the narrow sea, the Negus of Abyssinia had embraced Christianity, thereby gaining the allegiance of the great promoter of that fate, the Emperor of Constantinople. And it just so happened that Abyssinia and Persia were long-time rivals, both wanting to control the sea trade between Europe and India. So here too you see that religion became a major diplomatic tool. By turning on the Christians of Yemen, Himjar had provided the Abyssinians with the perfect excuse for an invasion, as well as for appealing to the Romans for aid. With their help, the Himjarite army was easily swept away. And now it was the Jews of Yemen who would face prosecution. But the Abyssinian king would not benefit from this victory for long. His underlings in Yemen fought among themselves and never sent him much tribute. Not that it would have proved a great prize anyway, Yemen's economy entered a downward spiral. Demand for its products fell dramatically. Agriculture suffered too, due to unrest and repeated crop failures. And to top it all, the country suffered from Justinian's plague, one of the first recorded deadly pandemics. Yemen could then hardly be called Arabia Felix anymore. According to the Islamic tradition at least, the Abyssinians eventually made a desperate move to find a source of income. They reportedly marched their army north, all the way into the Hijaz. Their purpose, the story has it, was to destroy the Kaaba. Why? Well, you may remember that in Yemen too there was a tradition of lucrative pilgrimages. Well, apparently the Abyssinians had the intention of diverting all Arabian pilgrims their way. But the invasion failed unexpectedly because of some miraculous event. An Ethiopian war elephant stubbornly refused to enter Mecca. This possibly might mythological event gave its name to the year in which the prophet was born, 570, the year of the elephant. That might, what might have driven the Abyssinian army back? Well, it might have been an attack of birds throwing stones, like the story says, or maybe taking a hungry and disease-ridden army to attack a desert people on their own terrain, Perhaps that was not a wonderful idea to begin with. Indeed, getting African elephants to Mecca in the first place, that's almost a miracle in its own right, even harder than marching them across the Alps, I think. Now, needless to say that many historians doubt whether any of this happened at all, but what is clear is that Abyssinian Yemen was now in a dreadful state, and that was a golden opportunity for the Persians. After an insurrection, they installed a Persian client state in Yemen and subsequently took control of the southern coast of Arabia. The Omanis were of course eager for a chance to kick them out again. The great Arab expansion would in time offer them that opportunity. While Rome and Persia squeezed their tentacles ever tighter around Arabia, in Mecca the year of the elephant had its own repercussions, or at least according to certain traditions. 
Some believe that it was around this time that Mecca became an important center for the caravan trade. Defeating the Abyssinians might have brought great prestige to Muhammad's tribe, the Quraysh. These were formerly nomadic peoples who had captured Mecca by force. The place has few strategic advantages. It was unfit for agriculture. There was only one major water source, the Zamzam. This is important to keep in mind, trade had brought the Quraysh prosperity and without it they would soon revert to poverty. This meant they had to, cha to change their mindset. The endemic tribal warfare could only endanger their newfound prosperity. So they sought an understanding with other important towns. Instead of being competitors who sacked each other's caravans now and then, they would be partners from then on. They took turns organizing market festivals according to a cyclical calendar, on which, of which the great market of Mecca would be the climax. As often in the ancient world, an agreement such as this could only hold if it was sanctioned by the gods. The gods of the ancient world were usually connected with one particular place. The fortunes of a town rose and fell with the power of its patron deities. In Arabia, these were usually presented as stones. Some may have seen these rocks as the gods themselves, literally. Now, it happened sometimes that these idols were brought to the supreme power of a region, either as a victory trophy, for safekeeping, or for religious reasons. This meant that the idols were either guests or hostages, or both, which gave the host leverage over their worshippers. It seems that the Quraysh, somehow, managed to make these tribes send their idol to Mecca. Perhaps because the defeat of the Abyssinians had demonstrated the might of Allah, who knows. Now, if they wanted to honor them, they had to travel there. This ensured that the recurring trade voyages would also become the region's main pilgrimage. Or maybe it was the other way around. Indeed, if the Abyssinians launched an invasion of Mecca because they were jealous of its attraction to pilgrims, it must have been quite important as a religious center already, no? Traditional sources indeed suggest that this may have been the case and that the Quraysh only took control of the trade routes later, after a tribal conflict. In any case, I will build on the assumption that the wealth of the Quraysh was still a recent state of affairs during the Prophet's youth. Now, like there is a link between the Hajj and the month of Ramadan, there also existed one between their respective pagan forerunners. There already was a holy month in which fighting was forbidden, so that pilgrims and traders alike would not be disturbed by raids. If indeed there was a tribal conflict over the trade voyages around 600, it's probably no coincidence that it is said to have taken place during that particular time of year. Now, if the Quraysh wanted to avoid a repetition of that, if they wanted other tribes to respect the custom of peace during the holy month, they would have to make their patron deities part of the pilgrimage too. Perhaps that's why these idols were placed in the Kaaba. This may also explain why, like today, pilgrims circled counterclockwise around this building. For this would have been symbolic of the order of market and religious festivals. The meaning of this ritual has of course changed completely since then, above all because the Kaaba is now devoted to Allah alone. Most religions have at some point taken over hidden places of worship. So was the Kaaba also a pagan building in origin? Well no, not according to the tradition anyway. Muslims believe that it was built by Abraham to thank God for not requiring the sacrifice of his son Isaac. 
The Festival of Eight, in which an animal is sacrificed, commemorates this event. In building the shrine, Abraham reportedly found the remains of an even older temple, buried beneath the sand. This sanctuary would be built by Adam, the first man, before being washed away by the Great Flood, you know, the one from Noah's Ark. Since it was supposedly built by the first man, the Kaaba was associated with the beginning of life on Earth. In this regard, I find it almost poetic that there is still a meteorite in it, known as the Black Stone, for in my twisted mind this is stranger than fiction. Sci scientists hypothesize that life on our planet may have begun when single-celled life forms airlifted to Earth on such rocks. If you don't believe me, go watch the Great Cosmos series with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Now, just to be clear, this link doesn't exist in reality, of course, I just found it a cool coincidence. There is something important to take away from this, however. That's that the Arabs considered themselves descendants of Abraham too, just like the Jews. According to their tradition, the great patriarch had had a child with his slave wife Hagar. The infant was called Ismail. Abraham, or as the Arabs would call him, Ibrahim, had to leave mother and child in the wilderness. There he later found them again, doing great. It was then, supposedly, that he was asked by God to sacrifice his firstborn, but to his relief, he was relieved of that shocking command. That's why the Kaaba is in Arabia. Oh yes, and in case you're wondering how Hagar and Ismail managed to survive in the desert, that's because an angel dug a hole in the ground and from that hole sprang Mecca's life-giving souls, the Zamzam. See, there's an elegant explanation for everything. You can already tell that Islam has more than one link with the Jewish religion, and with Christianity too. The Muslims didn't immediately separate themselves from these monotheistic traditions. They argued that the true message of these older prophets had been lost, misunderstood or twisted over the centuries. So it is little wonder that there are lots of similarities between Muslim, Jewish and Christian rituals. Muhammad recognized Christ as one of the earlier prophets, though not as son of God. Like the Jews, Muslims also circumcised their boys. And all three religions have a fasting period. The list goes on. Now, how come? As I said before, there were plenty of Christians and Jews in Arabia at the time. For instance, in the town of Yatrib, the later Medina, there were three Jewish tribes. The Lakhmit and Ghassanid rulers that patronized Christian sects. And we already talked about the Jews and Christians of Yemen. The trade that Mecca controlled was mostly between such regional power centers. And since trade spreads ideas as well as goods, these religions must have been well known in Western Arabia too. Also, these religions were not just passed on passively, they had missionary objectives. Part of the Christian sales pitch, for instance, is that there is only one God and that failing to worship him properly would land you in hell. With all this political, religious, epidemical and perhaps even environmental turbulence going on, people could be forgiven for thinking that the day of judgment was at hand. Now of all these places, it turns out that precisely in Mecca, paganism had become all dominant. Mecca, home of that all-important shrine of Abraham and Adam. Still, even there, some people were convinced that there was only one God, and it seems that Muhammad was among them, even before he started receiving his revelations. But since Mecca's dominance rested on an arrangement which depended on respect for the idols of other tribes, 
you can imagine that such ideas were not welcomed there, especially by the most powerful clan of the Quraysh, the Umayyads. Of course, it was they who profited the most from the growing prosperity. As so often, with greater riches comes greater inequality. You can imagine that this was unpopular with other clans of the Quraysh, like Muhammad's clan, the Banu Hashim. As Europeans and Americans can attest, if a country grows richer, it also tends to become more individualistic. It is strange and a bit embarrassing that in poorer countries, people are often more hospitable and generous, even towards strangers. I once had a friend who went road tripping in Iran and he told me how he was invited to a lavish dinner by an extremely poor family. He wanted to compensate them somehow, of course, but they wouldn't hear of it. That is hard to imagine where I come from. Now, Westerners like me can deplore that, but we are so used to living in an individualistic society that we don't notice a lack of hospitality and solidarity unless we are confronted with such stories. Except for immigrants from poor countries, mind you. But in Arabia, in the time of the Prophet, it seems that this change took place so fast that one could hardly fail to notice it. Traditionally, solidarity with less fortunate clan members was a supreme virtue, and that is putting it mildly even. It was mandatory. Failing to honor it was shameful. Now, I can think of only one explanation for that, and that's a Darwinistic one. In places with great uncertainty, anyone can fall into penury through no fault of their own. Crops can fail, raiders can take your stuff, trade routes can shift overnight, and then tribal solidarity offers vital insurance. Note that this solidarity was not universal. People had few qualms about attacking someone who would not be protected or avenged by a clan. Now, the Umayyads, it seems, had become so accustomed to living comfortably that they reckoned they wouldn't be needing the poor clans anytime soon. So they didn't bother too much about solidarity anymore either. These changes would have bothered Mohammed more than most. For if the traditions are correct, he was orphaned very young, which meant he would have first-hand experience of uh, the importance of such solidarity. He might have died young had his grandfather, and later his uncle, not taken him into their care. Before that, Mohammed's mother had given him to a Bedouin woman for rearing. That was not uncustomary. Presumably, people expected the child to become strong because the nomadic lifestyle was anything but easy. Like elsewhere, there existed an ambiguous relationship between nomads and city dwellers. The settlers considered the Bedouins savages and feared their unpredictability, but at the same time, they grudgingly acknowledged their archetypal virtues, like honor, courage and practicality. It's nearly impossible to relate to this as an outsider, but it makes me think of Rousseau's idea of the noble savage. Leaving children with the nomads may have been a way to ensure that their upbringing was uncorrupted by settled civilization. Or maybe there was a practical reasoning behind it. Bedouins probably saw their own lifestyle as more pure as well, but nonetheless they craved certain goods that they could only get from the settled societies, so they often preferred to cooperate with them. This love-hate relationship between nomads and settlers is not all that surprising. It is one of these things of which you may say that history rhymes. Apaches fought ranchers in the American Southwest. Kyrgyz nomads were displaced by the Soviet Union. Heck, even today, nomads and farmers are engaged in bloody turf wars in the Sahel. 
Arabia is one of these few places where the nomadic heritage is held in high regard, in part because there was little grazing land to fight over, and partly because thanks to oil most Arabians went straight from nomadism to city life. In earlier times, however, it was necessity that brought nomads and settled folks together. Farmers sometimes had to give up their lifestyle. A well could run dry, a hostile tribe could force them from their land, a trade route could shift. Many then became nomads themselves. A change could go in the other direction as well, for instance if a nomadic group took over a rich settlement. And the lines were always blurry. Indeed, seeing people as nomadic versus settled, that masks a more nuanced reality. Many people grew crops during one season, but took their cattle to graze somewhere else when the weather began to turn. So nomadic and settled cultures were not strictly separated. But generally speaking, the Bedouins were even more egalitarian and contemptuous of luxury than other Arabs. After all, they only owed what they could carry with them. Perhaps this left a mark on young Muhammad as well. One of those things that nomads had to offer was a deep understanding of the desert, and this was vital. Farming provided the livelihood in the oasis towns, but apart from fighting, trade was the only route out of poverty. Luckily for the Arabs, not all trade from Yemen and beyond came by ship. There was still money to be made from caravans. But crossing the vast Arabian desert is no picnic, even with a four-wheel drive and GPS tracking. And this is where the Bedouins came into play. They rented themselves out to help the caravans cross the desert. Muhammad would himself become a fine camel herder, perhaps partly due to the experience and knowledge that he gained during his time with the nomads. Rest assured that it was no picnic getting large quantities of precious goods across these treacherous wastelands. The Arabian desert was one of the last places on earth that remained devoid of human life, and with good reason too. It only became slightly more accessible around 1300 BC, which was, not coincidentally, when camels were first domesticated. Ever since, this fantastic beast is the most highly praised creature in Arabia, except perhaps for hunting falcons, and especially horses, which are more valuable in warfare. Mounting or dismounting a camel is not all that easy, after all, the creatures are bad-tempered and stubborn. They are also not as fast as horses, but on the plus side, they are perfectly adapted to the hostile environment of a desert. A camel can drink up to 200 liters of water in about 15 minutes, and then last for weeks. Not because it is jammed in its humps like in the cartoons, there's mostly fat in there, but not a drop of bodily fluid goes to waste. They have lots of other handy features, like an airco system in their nose and feet cushions that prevent them from sinking in the sand. Their unique bond with these majestic animals is what made Bedouin life possible. Camels provided not only transport, but also milk, leather, wool and meat. Like with the horses of the Central Asian steppe, camels were in time adopted by settled peoples, but only the nomad lived side by side with them literally all the time, which brought their mastery to another level. The fact that camel riders could venture where others couldn't also meant that they were good raiders. Ever since the camel was used in warfare, their raids became a problem to settled communities. Since they were always on the move, their possessions were limited to what they could take along, and if you can't own a lot, property doesn't mean as much to you. 
and sometimes the inhabitants of the peninsula simply needed someone else's goods to survive, for instance when their means of survival had suddenly disappeared. Stealing and looting was perfectly permissible in such occasions, especially for nomads. However, the same people who posed the greatest danger to the caravans could be hired to guide and protect them, and protection was vital. For want of resources, there was no state in Arabia Deserta, and hence no police. The only thing that prevented you from getting robbed, enslaved or worse, was the protection of a clan. And if that clan was too weak or distant, roaming Bedouins or hostile clans didn't think twice about attacking a caravan. There was no dishonor in that, on the contrary. So outsmarting robbers was an Im as important as dealing with the hostile environment itself. Muhammad was clearly a master at this, as well as in the deal-making itself. Not without reason, he was known as the trustworthy one. These skills would yet come in handy in the wars to come. But his tough youth must also have had an impact on his personality and values. Nomads, like those who raised him, had even less inequality than settled tribes, in part because their lifestyle put limits on the wealth they could usefully hoard. They valued prestige above possession. If they gained something, for instance through a successful raid, they often gave it all away at once to show off their generosity as well as their detachment from luxury. Now, to be sure, Muhammad didn't like such boastful displays of generosity either. Since everyone owed everything to God, such pride was misplaced. The zakat alms that he later made compulsory would have to be given humbly and discreetly. To remind people that they were ashes and dust, during prayer, Muslims would bring their heads down to the ground. Islam itself means submission. This was impossible to square with the proud defiance that was so typical of nomads, and by extension of most other Arabs as well. Because as I said earlier, nomadic and settled cultures overlapped. Now if we are to believe Karen Armstrong, the people of pre-Islamic Arabia didn't like to submit to anyone, not even their gods. They praised their gods, certainly, and they made sacrifices to them, but they saw this as a quid pro quo transaction. The god gave his blessing, in return he received an offering. It's another thing entirely to call yourself the god's servant and humiliate yourself before him. In later times, there would still be tensions between the Muslim ideals that Muhammad preached and the old desert culture. Think of Khalid ibn Walid, who ostentatiously gave away his spoils of war. By doing this, he ingratiated people to him and gave and enlarged his personal fame. This must have irritated Caliph Omar, who could make the point that the honor belonged to God alone. This was also at the core of the Prophet's thinking. Everyone owed everything to God, so it's in best taste to boast about one's own works and generosity. At the same time, this kept good generals from gaining a large power base of their own, an unintended side benefit of a high-minded policy, I'm sure. It's in this context of changing morals and existential doubt that Muhammad received his first revelation. This happened in a mountain cave near Mecca, where he regularly withdrew to meditate. One day, he came home to his wife, completely in shock. He told her that he was visited by the angel Jibril, or Gabriel, who had ordered him to recite the words of Allah. This lady, Khadija, believed him, and thereby became his first disciple. After consulting a local wise man, she could reassure him that the revelation was real. 
Many of Muhammad's early followers were not highly regarded, women, servants, slaves. Scholars have noted that this is perhaps not surprising since Muhammad declared that everyone was equal and equally a slave to Allah. It was clear to him that the mighty would appreciate, would not appreciate this message. For years he kept a low profile, shunning publicity and only disclosing what had occurred to him to trusted friends and relatives, and perhaps wisely so. But after a year or three, he was urged to spread the word to his own clan, the Banu Hashim. He invited the elders in his home, and true to his own humbling message, but not so much to the expected politeness, he served them a very sober meal. This ensured that they were irritated with him from the start. When during a follow-up meeting he asked who would be his helper and successor, only his nephew Ali stepped forward, to which Muhammad urged everyone to listen to the boy. Now this Ali was a son of Abu Talib, an important man who took care of Muhammad after his parents and grandfather had passed away. Other clan elders took this as an insult to Abu Talib's honor. Look, they said, he has now ordered you to obey your own son. In a patriarchal society like this one, that was a serious insult. So this was a tricky moment, but there were no serious consequences. Although Abu Talib didn't accept Islam himself, he was fond of his nephew and kept protecting him. But the meeting was not a big success either, apart from the conversion of Ali, of course. But it was an important step, as the new fate was now in the open. It was not considered harmful yet, though, for Muhammad was not yet attacking idol worship. Yet soon enough, he would put forward the Shahada, that there is only one God and that Muhammad is his prophet. He made it clear that the other stones in the Kaaba sanctuary were only false idols. Now, as I explained earlier, these were patron deities of other towns. Income from trade as well as pilgrimage depended on their recognition, and hence, so did the prosperity of the Quraysh, who reacted accordingly. Now Abu Talib's protection became vital. Muslims who were under his care were more or less left alone, but those who lacked such protection were brutally attacked. The harassments worsened considerably after Abu Talib passed away. It then became plain that Mecca had become a very dangerous place for Muslims. Worst of all, there would be a trade boycott against them. Since trade was the only means to obtain food and other necessities in Mecca, this was akin to a death sentence. It was only bearable, just, because family members and sympathizers circumvented the ban. Now, it is important, I think, to underline that the Muslims didn't react with violence or even anger. Outsiders sometimes point to the fact that Muhammad would fight many battles in his life to suggest that he was a violent man, but on closer inspection this was not at all the case. On the contrary, when he was humiliated, he reacted much like Jesus would do, would do by turning the other cheek. The violence that he would later use had the purpose of uniting the people and thereby preventing further violence. At some point, the situation became truly untenable. Luckily, a solution presented itself. North of Mecca, there lay a prosperous settlement called Yatrib, which would later be called Medina, the city of the Prophet. The local tribes were embroiled in such blood feuds as was typical of Arabia since time immemorial, and they thought an outside mediator might be able to find a way out of these troubles. For this reason, Muhammad was invited to come to Yatrib. He had shown himself a convincing preacher and a seasoned trader. 
he clearly understood the art of the deal. This is how he gained political power. As we've seen before, in Arabian tribal societies, arbitration is crucial in stopping or preventing bloodshed, and being good at it was a sure way to make a political career. Muhammad accepted the invitation, but he would not go alone. He sent his followers ahead, so they would have safety and numbers. Still, he realized he had to tread with caution. Emigrating would mean tearing the Quraysh apart, and they would not let it happen. He waited until many of the Muslims had made their way to Yatrib and then sneaked out with his friend Abu Bakr, while Ali stayed in his bed to confound the assassins. This departure, the Hijra, marks the first year of the Islamic calendar. Now, perhaps you've heard this event being referred to as the second Hijra, the second Exodus. That is because earlier, important Muslims had found shelter in Aksumite Abyssinia. The most important of them, perhaps, was Ibn al Waqqas, who would come to play a crucial role in the conquest of Persia. The Quraysh sent one of their most influential merchants to the Aksumite king, asking him to hand over the refugees. This was Amr ibn al-As. And now the prize-winning question for those who have really been paying attention. Where have we heard that name before? Yup, this was the same Amr ibn al-As that led the Muslim conquest of Egypt. But like other heroes of the Caliphate, at this time, he still played the villain's part. Which once again shows you that history is a story of complex people rather than angels and demons. Now, despite Amr's cunning, the Aksumite king turned him down and granted asylum to the Muslims. That is not um, all that logical, for they had little power at that time, while the Quraysh were still very important to Abyssinia. Why he did it is not clear, but perhaps he saw them as enemies already and wanted to divide them. Or perhaps there were religious reasons. The king was a devout Christian, it seems, and the Muslims recognized Jesus as an important prophet. Be that as it may, the Muslims would not forget this act of kindness. When the whole region was later swarmed by the armies of the Caliphate, the vulnerable Abyssinians were left alone. If not for the first Hijra, there might not be so many Christians in Ethiopia today. So although this first exodus was short-lived, it may still have been highly consequential in the long run. But it was of course eclipsed by the second Hijra to Yatrib or Medina. On arrival there, Muhammad was welcomed as a savior. Everyone wanted to offer him hospitality. But he was smart enough to realize that if he accepted such an invitation, that would be interpreted as picking sides, which would gravely undermine his mission as a mediator. Although he must have been exhausted, he still had the presence of mind to find a cunning solution. He left the decision to his camel. Where the animal stopped, the Muslims built him a modest house for him, which served as the prototype of any later mosque. The Prophet succeeded in uniting Yatrib's Arab tribes behind him. Nothing brings people together like a common enemy. It was clear that the Muslims could not live in peace with the city they had fled. The fate had to get back to the town of the Kaaba. But the Quraysh would never come around willingly, and the surest way to get their attention was by raiding their caravans. If trade was Mecca's lifeblood, then these caravans were its arteries. Yatrib was ideally located for such attacks, and Muhammad had led many a caravan down these paths before, when he was still an aide to his later wife Khadija. 
but although he was familiar with the paths they took, it still proved hard to intercept them. They took a different route each time, precisely to avoid ambushes. Eventually, though, the raids were successful. They brought riches to Medina, popularity to the Prophet, and above all, they disrupted Meccan trade. This would of course lead to a prolonged confrontation in which both sides had the upper hand at some point. Yatrib had one major weakness, however, its internal divisions. There were three strong Jewish clans. Perhaps their influence explains why Muhammad's religion was so eagerly embraced in Medina. As I said, there were many similarities between Islam and Judaism. The Quran does speak highly of Jewish prophets, they worshipped the same God. They only failed to see that Muhammad had made knowledge of earlier prophets redundant. But it cautioned to tolerate the so-called people of the book, and in Medina they were fully part of the community. At first, prayer was even directed towards Jerusalem. But as you know, this is no longer the case today. While there are still similarities between the monotheistic faiths, of course, there are also rituals that mark their distinction. For instance, the Jews have their Sabbath, the Christians see Sunday as the day of the Lord, and the Muslims have their Friday prayer. They would distinguish themselves from the others more explicitly over time, and that process started during the first Jihad in Medina. Although the Jews of that town refused to convert to Islam, they did enter a political alliance with the Prophet, refusing to do so uh, besides, would uh, divide the settlement and hence weaken it in the face of its rivals. And that was exactly what would happen. As so often in war, the saying of George W. Bush Jr. applied, either with us or against us. This was especially true for the home front. There was a religious rationale behind the Muslims' quarrel with Mecca, and the Jewish tribes didn't share that rationale. But they still had to cooperate with the Muslims, otherwise they would be a mortal threat, an enemy within. When push came to shove, their political understanding proved worthless time and again, however. Two of the Jewish tribes were expelled, after which they joined forces with Medina's enemies. Then there came a major battle, in which the very survival of Medina and Islam was at stake. In that desperate moment, the last Jewish tribe was accused of breaking the alliance, hence endangering the community. Since the earlier expulsions had come back to bite the Muslims, this time, well, let's say more drastic measures were taken. So although Muhammad did come into conflict with the Jews of Medina, it was not religious in nature. Neither was it about culture, by the way, for in that sense the Jews were indistinguishable from other Arabs. The conflict was purely about politics. There is no such thing as a clean war. Muhammad didn't like spilling blood, but he considered it necessary for the greater good uniting the Arabs behind Islam and thereby stopping the endless chain of vendettas. It was a war to end all Arabian wars, so to speak. You can tell by looking at what he did next. When the Muslims became the stronger side, they found themselves in a position to take Mecca by force. But instead, he went to Mecca unarmed and made a pact with the Quraysh, one which seemed so much to the Muslims' disadvantage that even his most faithful followers questioned his wisdom at that point. Not only would they not visit the Kaaba at the time, which had been the goal of their expedition, they even promised to stop raiding and they promised to send back any more aspiring Muslims who came over from Mecca to Medina. 
This meant an end to the strategy that, they ha that had led to their success, and all that to make peace with a nearly defeated enemy. If war had been politics by other means, however, this peace was certainly a war by other means. When another young man came over to Medina, Muhammad, trustworthy as always, sent him back under escort. But the aspiring convert killed his guard and then began raiding the caravans on his own accord, well knowing what the results would be. While the Muslims had kept their word, Meccan trade was still sabotaged all the same. So much so, in fact, that to avoid repetition, the Meccans released Muhammad from his vow and allowed him to accept new migrants from Mecca anyway. This made the other important contractual obligation of the Muslims a dead letter too. What had seemed like a bad deal turned out to be a brilliant stratagem in disguise. Finally, the Meccans evacuated their city so that the Muslims could make the Hajj. This was the biggest reason the Prophet had made the deal in the first place. Now probably many Meccans suspected they would uh, lose their city indefinitely as the Muslims moved in, but instead the pilgrims behaved respectfully and above all showed great discipline. This may have convinced many Meccans to come over to their side, including later heroes of the Arab expansion like Amr ibn al-As and Khalid ibn Walid. In the end, the Prophet was allowed to unite the communities and take control of Mecca without bloodshed. He then went to the Kaaba to destroy the idols. In many ways, the rules that Muhammad imposed were more humane than what had come before. For instance, in pre-Islamic Arabia, murders, and much smaller offenses too, were avenged through either blood or blood money. Any act of revenge would in turn invite retribution, starting an endless cycle of violence. The Prophet put an end to this. To him, only the offender was guilty of his crime and his clansmen should not be blamed. Note that tribal customs in many Muslim countries are still not exactly in line with this view. Fans of honor killings take note. The punishments themselves were rather firm for today's standards, but not by the standards of the time. And above all, the required evidence was impressive. For instance, for someone to be found guilty of adultery, no fewer than four witnesses should have, been, should have seen the actual deed happening with their own eyes. What's more, if the accuser failed to present sufficient testimony, he himself was to be punished, and quite severely too. According to some, this may have been imposed when the Prophet's favorite wife Aisha was wrongfully accused of adultery. Again, by contrast, in certain countries that call themselves strictly Islamic, today people accused of infidelity are often stoned to death without a trial worthy of the name. The widespread idea that the most important feature of Islamic law is strictness is a grave misconception. Another common misunderstanding is that its imposition worsened the condition of women. In general, the Prophet had given them high standing, certainly in the beginning. Khadija and Aisha are among the most celebrated personalities in Islam, but they don't conform to the image of a subservient person that has to stick to her cooking. Khadija was a successful merchant in her own right, who herself took the initiative of marrying Mohammed. Aisha was at the center of the Battle of the Camel, of which I told you earlier, and an important source of hadiths. In pre-Muslim Arabia, by contrast, whenever a girl was born, the father was supposed to be angry, since only male heirs could further the bloodline. Before Islam, women who failed to produce boys were often divorced, 
Many a baby girl was buried alive and the father was publicly shamed. The prophet himself was even mocked by his enemies for not producing any surviving sons, which would pose problems for Islam in the long run, as we've seen. But he didn't regard women as inferior beings. Under Islam, they were entitled to their own possessions, and if their husbands divorced them, they could lay claim to their dowries too. It's true that polygamy was still allowed for men only, while previously it had existed for women too. But this too should be seen in proper context. In combination with the fact that women couldn't own property, their polygamy could sanction forced prostitution. And why not go forbid polygamy in general? Well, during the, the jihad against the Quraysh, many of the Muslim men in Medina died, which meant that their wives were widowed and their children were orphaned. Without a husband, they would not be cared for, and few people were eager or able to have more mouths to feed than one. In these conditions, to marry the widow of a fallen brother was an act of charity. It's hard to imagine, I think, a more enlightened policy achieving better results in terms of human suffering. The husband could also not act as he pleased. The woman's well-being had to be guaranteed. One man could, could wed four wives maximum, since he had to treat them equally and provide for them. With more than four, that would be impossible, especially for people who only had just enough food for themselves. Except for the prophet, perhaps and that may provide a reasonable explanation why this didn't apply to him. But there are others, and better ones. As long as he didn't have a male heir, there was a real danger that the community would fall apart after his death, as would indeed happen. Throughout history, people with great responsibility rarely have the luxury to choose their life partners with only their own romantic feelings in mind. Marriage was the best way to seal political alliances. If the Prophet had to limit himself to four women, this would have been detrimental to the Muslim community. For instance, even before the Quraysh opened their gates to the Prophet, Muhammad had married a daughter of their leader, Abu Sufyan, who was also the father of the later Caliph Muawijah, by the way. For similar reasons, many Muslim kings and rich men have married many women, including the Saudis and the Bin Ladens. They could stay within the limits of Islam by divorcing them after they had given them a son, thereby uniting the families through common blood. The Prophet's own daughter Fatima was betrothed to Ali and their offspring would later be called the family of the Prophet, including the Shia Imams as well as the Jordanian kings. Such marriages were often arranged when the girl was still a child, but usually not consummated until she was considered ripe for childbearing. Now, if a girl of 10 is married off to a man of 50, in practice this pretty much ensures who will be boss of the household. But it's not as if Islam mandates this balance between the sexes. After all, Muhammad's first wife Khadija was many years his senior. Thanks in no small part to cunning diplomacy, Muhammad had fulfilled his goal of claiming Mecca for Islam and the Kaaba for Allah. Still, that was not the end of his struggles. There would be other wars with non-Islamic tribes. And interestingly, Muhammad's newfound allies, including Abu Sufyan, were rewarded with a disproportionate share of the spoils. This led to friction with earlier converts, who were like, hey, what gives? We've been with you from the start, and now these guys get all the goodies? But more likely, this generosity was really a sign of contempt, like saying, you only came over so that you could profit. Well then, knock yourselves out. 
same sort of opportunistic reasons may have motivated the tribes of Oman and Yemen when they offered their allegiance. Now that the Muslims were the dominant power in Arabia, it became useful for these groups to associate themselves with them. Likewise, they started to regard themselves as Arabs too, while in earlier times the people of Yemen, for instance, had used that name for the folks who lived north of them. Similarly, the Omanis badly wanted allies who could help drive the Persians from their coastline. Once they were part of the Muslim community, they could start lobbying for eastward expansion, to West India for instance, since they had commercial interests there. Joining a conquering army is not always a bad idea. One might say that at the end of Muhammad's life he had obtained this objective. The Arabs were at peace with one another, as all were united in their sworn allegiance to him. Alas, the unity would not outlast him for long. As soon as he died, many expected him to return, like the Christians claimed had happened to their Messiah. But, as Abu Bakr reminded everyone, Muhammad had never claimed to be a miracle worker, let alone a son of God. The only miracle he had performed was reciting the Quran. But not everyone agreed. There were some who thought that with the Prophet's death, they were no longer bound by their oath of allegiance. They had made no pledges to the Prophet's successor, after all. Most Arabs did not abandon Islam, but simply felt no need to send any more taxes to Medina. Clearly, they considered it a form of tribute, rather than almsgiving. There were groups close to home who intended to take over Medina, and that was a mortal threat to the young caliphate, but the problem was worse in the far-flung outskirts of Arabia. And that may not have been coincidental, Muhammad had sent emissaries to such distant tribes, and these would have accepted Islam, but not all historians are convinced that this meant that they were really under Muhammad's sway in any practical sense. There were thousands of miles of desert between them and the Hijaz. In this telling, the war of reconquest that Abu Bakr waged was really a war of conquest. People who follow this view suggest that traditional scholars tend to overstate the acts of the religion's founder. Perhaps their strongest argument is the lack of attention for Muhammad outside the peninsula. But as I've said earlier, it's not as if Arabia was at the center of Roman or Persian attention at the time, they had other things to worry about. The war between Mecca and Medina coincided with the last war between Persia and Byzantium. It has been argued that, had this not been the case, the great powers would never have accepted the disruption of the caravan trade that was key to the Muslims' final victory. Instead, they were preoccupied with their own survival, and their Lakhmid and Ghassanid vassals were also no longer around to do anything about it. There are other difficulties with the revisionists' viewpoint too. For instance, they would have to explain why these apostate tribes were excluded from partaking in the early conquests, until Omar reversed his decision for want of manpower. Surely every able-bodied man would be useful from the start in such an endeavor. Why exclude so many able fighting men if not for such a serious offense as apostasy? As we said before, the debate on such issues is polarized and poisoned by current sensitivities, but perhaps both accounts are not mutually exclusive. Suppose, for instance, that the South Arabians considered themselves fully part of the Muslim Empire, but did not participate in its politics in any significant way until the Prophet's death. That might make them apostates, strictly speaking, but it would also make the wars of apostasy the first time that the Muslims had boots on the ground in these places. 
The lack of a clear successor had more lasting consequences, however. Soon after Muhammad's death, Abu Bakr and Omar received word that important people from Medina were gathering, maybe to choose one of their own or to go their separate ways. According to tradition, Abu Bakr convinced them that only a member of the Prophet's own tribe, the Quraysh, would be acceptable to most Muslims. At the end of the heated argument that followed, Omar pledged his allegiance to Abu Bakr and he became the first caliph. But Ali refused to pledge his allegiance for quite some time because he had not been consulted. The two eventually reconciled, but this was a bad omen of things to come. In time, the question of succession ended with Ali dead and the Umayyads in power. Their first caliph was Muawiyah, the son of Abu Sufyan, who had long been the Prophet's most dangerous enemy. The result is the split between Sunnis and Shias that still echoes through world politics to this day. I think it's time to conclude the episode by talking a bit about what we learned about the five pillars of Islam. As I said, each of them has their own eternal value, but this is not the place to talk about that, nor am I qualified to do so. I mainly talk about the historical context in which they emerged. One, the Shahada, the statement that there is only one God, Allah, and that Muhammad is his messenger. I think this reflects the fact that in the Arabia of that day, religion and politics were closely intertwined, and that politics was a very personal affair, revolving around loyalty to a leader. In other words, the law, with a capital L in this case, was what the Prophet said it was. Does this mean that in Islam there can never be a separation of church and state, no matter in what context? Does it mean that Muslims cannot accept a democratic system, since parliaments can only follow the Sharia? Those are hot topics, very sensitive. Those inside and outside the Muslim world that declare a war of civilizations would answer yes. As you can probably guess by now, I'm not exactly in favor of that approach. I'm willing to admit that there is no objective way of answering such questions, but I think that at least we should acknowledge that the affirmative answer is an interpretation that does not necessarily follow from the Shahada itself. We have already seen that there are many different lights in which you can view this. Perhaps you will remember we compared it to the US Constitution. I could only add to that that the Prophet himself, although he was by no means afraid to go against the general opinion, did make compromises for the greater good. He tried to live in peace with other religions and he didn't force his own on anyone. True, he fell out with the Jews of Medina, but only when they became a political threat, perhaps even an existential one. He had no problem with their separate traditions and beliefs. The Quran even urges people to leave them alone. There was no clear policy towards atheists, but these were a pretty rare bunch in that day and age anyway. It seems to me that Muhammad was more than capable of separating politics from religion himself. That was not exactly a dogma, however, and nor could it be, this was not the time of the Enlightenment. Eventually, the tolerance towards non-Muslims no longer applied to Arabia itself. Um, the non-Muslims were given four months to leave. If they were found in the peninsula afterwards, they could be murdered, robbed or enslaved. But still, I don't think this must be seen as religious intolerance. It may seem a strange statement, but consider the context. Since prehistory, this lack of human rights, if you will, already applied to anyone who was not entitled to the protection of a tribe. Now Islam had become the Arabians' common tribe, so no one was under the obligation to protect those who didn't belong to that community. 
Nonetheless, this expulsion of non-believers has led to all sorts of trouble down the line. Like when US troops were brought in to protect the Saudi kingdom against Saddam, a supposed sacrilege that became an excuse for the attacks of 9-11. Another pillar of Islam was the Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca. We've seen that it already existed before Islam. In another form, of course. Muhammad changed it in some ways, the more important being the destruction of the idols. This was the main reason why the Quraysh had opposed him so hard. They feared that this would endanger their understanding with other tribes, who considered the idols their patron gods. If this pact ended, so might lucrative pilgrimages. But ironically, even from a purely financial standpoint, it proved the best thing that had ever happened to the Quraysh. Mecca kept receiving a constant stream of pilgrims, who would soon come from far beyond the peninsula. As we've seen in previous episodes, this would also lead to all sorts of complications as Islam became more diverse. Every upside has its downside. The reinstatement of the Hajj was not purely a gift to the Quraysh to seal their new understanding with Muhammad, however. It had been one of the things he had fought them over. But it certainly worked as a compromise and perhaps he had known that it was a necessary part of that all along. It seems that the Prophet had always preferred a peaceful solution for his quarrel with the Quraysh, and in the end he got it. By the way, have you noticed that Jihad was not named as a pillar of Islam? In fact, the fighting itself was considered a lesser Jihad, also by most Muslims today, fortunately enough. Muhammad reportedly said that the ink of the scholar was worth more than the blood of the martyr. The real jihad is about self-improvement, about absorbing the essence of Islam. Which is something that Sufis point to as a reason why their practices are really a return to the religion's essence. In this regard, we can also point to yet another pillar of Islam. The Salat prayer has to be directed to Mecca and we've seen that this can hardly be understood if you don't know about the struggle with that city. But the prayer in itself, and more precisely the way in which it must be performed, was perhaps the most revolutionary part of the Prophet's message. Humans are slaves to God, not his equals. For people who are used to monotheism, that's hardly a dubious statement, but it was shocking to the Arabs who insisted that pride was a virtue. Bowing down until your head touches the ground is a way of reminding people to be humble. I think that is something that most people, in most cultures, could use a bit of. Like all of those narcissistic nobodies trying to immortalize themselves by starting podcasts. <clears throat> by the way, in uh, nearly all matters, the Prophet himself didn't put himself uh, above others either. He lived in a humble house, not a castle. He freed his slaves whenever he could and treated them so well that they preferred to stay with him as free men. A slave with a strong voice was even tasked with calling the Muslims to prayer, thereby becoming the first muezzin. Likewise, the Ramadan fast was also meant to remember to be modest and to sympathize with the poor who never had enough to eat anyway. Many of today's critics think that early Islam is unfairly seen as an egalitarian movement, but just looking at these pillars, it's hard not to. In a way, most religions start off as revolutions. Jesus and the Buddha were also surrounded by people who were held in low esteem. They also thought that all earthly riches are temporary and eventually hollow. But any pure ideal can potentially get corrupted, if you're not careful. Muhammad seems to have been very well aware of this. Ironically, Islam's success indirectly contributed to this fear coming true. 
the urbanized elites of Mecca eventually realized that the acceptance of Islam opened new opportunities for them. They had not been popular with the poor masses, but thanks to their marriage ties with the Prophet, they now obtained a new legitimacy. In addition, nomadic raids had always threatened their trade, but Muhammad had annihilated this problem too. Muslims should henceforth be left alone. Better yet, they found that the military power of the nomad could now be turned to their own advantage, namely, to conquer outside territories. Once the Umayyads were able to take charge of Islam, it gave them opportunities they could only dream of before. After they won the civil war, they became, became hereditary monarchs. The Islamic principles of modesty and equality would then be given a completely different interpretation, to say the least. The zakat, the final pillar of Islam, would be corrupted too. It even became an obstacle to more conversions. Muslim taxes were less burdensome than those on the rest of the population, so many would try to convert for opportunistic reasons. In Muhammad's view, zakat had absolutely nothing to do with getting rich on the back of subject populations. On the contrary, it was about sharing with the downtrodden, who were equals before God. Alms should be given humbly, for everyone should recognize that he himself could have been in a bad position had he been more unlucky. It was a correction to the unfair tax system that had been in vogue under the Quraysh. Just as importantly, it supplanted the old solidarity, which had been confined to the clan. In its stead, the Prophet commanded solidarity with all members of the religious community. And if Islam is a religion with universalist ambitions, Perhaps the ultimate goal is universal solidarity. If so, Muhammad would presumably not be best pleased with the final results. His body wasn't even cold before tribal rivalries flared up again. As for today, look no further than what happened to those poor people working on World Cup stadiums in Qatar. But perhaps general solidarity is a utopia in the first place. Tribalism is by no means limited to Arabian societies after all, it is present all around the world in one form or another. Perhaps it's inextinguishable because it offers a Darwinistic advantage. Groups who look after their own may have a better chance of surviving. But I think that history has shown that culture can overrule this tribalism, at least up to a point. For instance, in modern welfare states, people are expected to share the, with their fellow citizens, whether they are related to them or not. Religion has the potential to do this too. Universal solidarity may be an ideal that is impossible to achieve, but frankly, so are human rights or free markets. That doesn't mean it's not worth striving for. Perhaps trying to understand one another is an important first step. Who knows, maybe this podcast could offer a tiny push in the right direction. Inshallah. <laughs>